The Money Show with Motel Haripe on 702. Let's walk the talk. Absa CIB, the bank that provides a customized treasury tool to manage FX risk and reporting, is proud to bring you The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield. Absa is a registered FSP. Good evening and welcome to the Thursday edition of The Money Show. My name is Mateo Kharipe, in for Bruce for the rest of the week. Well, as you've heard on Eyewitness News, petrol and diesel prices set to increase in March. I'm the bearer of bad news again. The Automobile Association projection uh, that they would see fuel prices exceeding 24 rand a litre for both grades of petrol, edging closer to the 25 rand a litre uh, record high that we saw last year. I promise you I'm not trying to uh, have that drive home be more stressful than it already is. But we'll be looking at the causes of such price movements, focus on the effects of geopolitical unrest on commodity prices and what that will mean for the South African economy. That conversation with uh, Julian Grieve, the co-head of Resources Sector Solutions at RMB. Then there were two technical recessions in the economy uh, today, uh, one from the UK and another one from Japan. Does that spell bad news for South Africa? We'll find out for, uh, from uh, Rudy van der Marwe, Portfolio Manager at Advice Works. He'll be covering markets with us. Later on the show, we find out what came out of the United Nations roundtable discussion. This particular discussion are talking about the financial health of the South African economy. Not a lot to talk about positively when it comes to our economy. So we'll find out what some of the insights uh, were coming out from that meeting with Frigo Thomas, a group managing executive for retail and business banking at NetBank. Later on the show, we have our features, of course, uh, looking at the investment school. Today, we're talking the chip-making sector, all those companies that make the chips that go into our laptops and smartphones. Uh, Should you be putting your money on those kind of businesses? And how will AI affect this particular industry? Viv Governor from Rend Swiss is, of course, our head teacher today. And we'll also have our small business focus later on The Money Show. The Money Show will give you all the tools you need to navigate the complicated world of economics and commerce, even if you're not a numbers person. The Money Show with Motel Faribe. 6 to 8 p.m. Making money makes sense. On 702 and Cape Talk. Well, one word has been popping up increasingly when companies report results, when central banks announce on interest rates and over dinner tables around the world. The word geopolitics has been used over 12,000 times in 2023 in company results, political speeches and other reports last year. And it's clearly more than a conversation now. It's really a lived experience for many around the world. Now, with the Russia-Ukraine war still rumbling on and widening conflict in the Middle East capturing the news headlines. One wonders how this will affect the prices on the market and also some of the commodity prices. We saw what happened with the Russia-Ukraine war, the push on coal and also the push on gas, but also something that really affected South Africans, that increase in the oil price. Let's talk now on the effects of geopolitics with uh, Julian Grieve, the co-head of Resources Sector Solutions at RMB. Not just a buzzword for 2023, but a real risk for many economies around the world. Uh, Julian. I agree. And I think that a lot of the risk is sort of being ignored by the markets or kind of slipped under the carpet. So if you think about it, what happened in, in 2022 when Russia invaded Ukraine, you saw massive spikes in the commodity complex. Oil was over $100 a barrel. And now we're sitting at around 80 there's a lot of almost, I guess, fatigue. I'm wondering, uh, uh, Julian, if you can try get you on a better line there. Uh, we'll have the producers have to throw you another new line, see if we can get you on a clearer line. So we can uh, further talk around this geopolitical unrest, of course. Uh, something that's quite concerning is uh, what's happening in uh, uh, Palestine and also the uh, Russia-Ukraine war we've seen as well with the Red Sea uh, holdoff. That's what that's done to trade as well. So all the risks that we've heard the South African Reserve Bank talk about uh, as headwinds uh, for this year uh, playing themselves out and all of those have an effect on uh, commodity prices like oil. We've seen gold as a safe haven uh, also increase in price because of geopolitical tensions. So those uh, will be the causes of the cautious trade that we've seen on uh, not only the JSE but the New York Stock Exchange 
and other markets in Europe as well. Uh, and it doesn't bode well to see economies like Japan and the UK falling into technical recessions. It means some of these risks, uh, are these geopolitical risks, are also having an effect on those leading economies. I think we've got uh, Julian back on the line. Uh, Julian, if you can just pick up on the effects uh, and the risks of geopolitical unrest going into this economic year. Sure, and hopefully the line's a little bit better now. Sorry about that. It was hopefully not too content, content and rather just line issues. Yeah, you so I was saying that, uh, you know, I think, brilliant. I think that um, what's, what's interesting to us at the moment is how little of that geopolitical risk is priced into the commodity markets. And if you think about 2022, when Russia invaded Ukraine, you had an oil price that spiked over $100 a barrel, and now we're sitting at 80 and arguably, there's more conflict in the world. I mean, that the Middle Eastern conflict, the fact that you've got Pakistan and Iran trading blows, and these are two nuclear powers. Um, there's a lot of capacity for scary things to happen, and yet the markets are quite muted overall. I think the only place where you're really seeing things shine is in the safe haven of old. And let's talk about that uh, safe haven. Of course, a lot, when, when you see a lot of cautious trade on the market, uh, when you see a lot of muted trade on the market, you often see the price of gold going up. And uh, that's showing it as a safe haven, especially during times of unrest and uncertainty. Uh, is that sustainable, though, for many of the economies that have come out of uh, the COVID era trying to uh, rebound? Well, I think... It's similar to, to what you're seeing in the markets themselves and that you're having some economies faring much better than others, right? So everyone's been surprised and upside by the U.S. and how resilient they've been. And certainly they had a, a lot more tools in their toolbox to protect people coming out of COVID. And Europe certainly also protected its people, whereas in the developing world, you just didn't have governments who could support people like that. So it's really kind of the tale of two halves and I guess the, the global south has, has suffered in the comeback and is certainly struggling in a lot of places. The recent dip in commodity prices for a lot of Africa which is a uh, net commodity exporter is going to hurt that too. So you know, I think it's difficult times to come. There's a lot of benefit in the gold price and where it is. It's certainly we produce on this continent a fair amount of gold. Unfortunately South Africa misses out on a little bit of that because we've had a declining production trend. And um, we're seeing a lot of pressure from the other commodity prices, and particularly platinum and metals. And off the corner of our eyes, uh, uranium also uh, rising in terms of prices. What does uh, geopolitical tensions and unrest have to do with that particular uh, resource? Yeah, I think that one's possibly removed from, from the geopolitics in that the, there are a bunch of countries, and particularly China, who ignored a lot of the noise about nuclear that prevailed post-Fukushima and where you had a lot of the West going anti-nuclear, they just continued on their build. And with that expansion in capacity, there haven't been a lot of mines that have been developed in the same time frame. So you've got the supply chain constraints now happening. And increasingly, people are seeing nuclear as almost an essential ingredient in a green transition. And if we want to get to net zero, nuclear is one of those amazing candidates for baseload power that is on all the time. And one of those commodities that affects definitely a lot of South Africans' pockets of, and plays on our inflation and uh, the petrol prices I was talking on earlier is the oil price and uh, these geopolitical tensions. Uh, we've seen what happened uh, with the Russia-Ukraine war and what that meant for the price of oil. It then went down. Uh, of course, OPEC tried to drive it up last year, but I don't think they'll have to do much of that with uh, what's happening currently, uh, playing itself out in politics in terms of geopolitics. How will that affect... Uh, the price of petrol and also our economy going into this year? Look, I think what we should expect is, is surprises in the oil market. Those of that in the Middle East and the ability for things to spill over. Um, oil is not a happy space for a lot of the Middle East. The Saudis probably don't want the price where it is now. They could see that higher. You know, they cut production to try and support the market. Um, so there's certainly some players in the market who want to see that increase and that's going to South Africans' pockets. You know, we're not an oil producer, so we definitely see that coming through in the petrol price, and that cascades through the economy. Uh, personally, I think that there's more risk to the upside in the oil market than in the downside for the rest of this year.
We've heard a lot of central banks talking about headwinds uh, and they're wanting to wait and see before they could cut on interest rates. And some of these risks are geopolitical in their nature, especially this year. Uh, will you see a more cautious uh, note coming out of the world's central banks in terms of cutting interest rates, not only because of where inflation is currently, but also because of geopolitics? Yeah, I think that they are, are cautious because they're not sure that we're out of the woods on the inflation front yet. And there are different inflation mandates on different central banks. You know, For example, the U.S. also has an employment uh, mandate. So they'll be keeping an eye on multiple factors, whereas at home we're a little bit more disciplined in our inflation targeting. So yeah, I think a, a cautious approach from central bank governors makes a lot of sense and cutting too fast has its risks. Um, but... A lot of the historical behavior from central banks is they they will keep on hiking rates until something breaks. And we haven't seen something break just yet. Earlier on, you mentioned that uh, the uh, geopolitical unrest has not been priced in by the market. What is the particular risk of not doing that? I think that you're on the risk of uh, having this kind of lower than expected or lower than necessary prices. So that the you get lulled into a false sense of security around this being a sustainable level and then one of these events materializes and then you have a jump in the price and then you'll find a lot of consumers of particularly energy being caught wrong-footed because they quickly see an adjustment in their cost base and they haven't had time to, to react or to plan. And what do you do as an investor then looking into the market if you are playing in commodities? Uh, are you somebody that's sitting on their hands and waiting for, for more, a more settled situation when it comes to geopolitics? Or do you hedge your bets uh, on uh, things working out later in the year? I think later in the year is always uh, increasing your forecast risk. But to, to stay out of the market is not necessarily such a painful thing right now because interest rates are high. So you've got a good incentive not to be taking that risk right now as you get paid a decent yield on your cash. And so that's not necessarily a bad option. You can play a bit of a wait-and-see game. But there are certainly potential rewards for those who, who make some bold decisions right now. And I think that, that with the potential for supply disruptions, there could be some upside risk on those. Choose the kind of right names, companies that are well-positioned, who have uh, flexibility in their balance sheets, then those are good ones to target. I was in a conference earlier on uh, this month and saying that debt is a little bit like Botox and a little bit can make you look (laughs) good, but too much of it can kill you. All right, that was Julian Grieve, co-head of Resources and Sector Solutions at RMB, looking at the geopolitical unrest we're seeing in the world uh, uh, this year and likely a risk on that on the world economy. Things aren't as uh, settled as we would have hoped uh, coming out of 2023. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB the bank that provides a customized treasury tool to manage FX risk and reporting. After the registered FSP. The Money Show. The Markets. A very interesting day on the markets, especially when you look at the GDP numbers that came out uh, Firstly, this morning with Japan earlier on in the Asian markets falling into a technical recession. Later on in the afternoon, our time, of course, uh, the UK also announcing a technical recession. Joining me to discuss markets is Rudy van der Merwe, Portfolio Manager at Advice Works. That doesn't bode well in terms of a message of the global economy. A lot of weakness we're seeing on the market. Uh, evening, Matteo. Yeah, you're quite right. Uh, you know, so as you mentioned, Japan falling into recession, that is a bit unexpected. Their GDP numbers came in marginally negative, about 0.1% negative growth for the fourth quarter. But the anticipation had been that that would be a positive growth of, of around sort of 0.3%. Uh, so this follows on from, from a negative growth number in the third quarter. And, and mainly seems to be driven by, by private consumption coming under pressure. Uh, and then in the UK, also GDP contracting there by 0.3-odd percent uh, in the fourth quarter from a contraction of 0.1-odd percent in the third quarter. And again, a lot of this is to do with consumption, but also services and net trade data and the household and public spending and the like. So it's clearly a lot of a lot of pressure in those economies, um, you know, a significant slowdown being evident. Uh, and we've 
seen later in the day as well. Some confirmation from the U.S. retail sales numbers came out there, and they surprised quite materially on their downside, so shrank by 0.8 of a percent, um, where they'd been expected to, to shrink by, by much less than that, and also industrial production numbers, which shrank and had been expected to uh, to accelerate. So all of that indicating that, that economies and consumers are under under very significant pressure, unfortunately, and and what makes it, I think, more unpleasant is, is this is coming at a time where, on the, you know, they, they, there's doubt starting to creep into the narrative that uh, inflation has been beaten. Um, certainly, central banks are being very careful, saying, "Well, they don't know that this fight has been won." We've seen wage settlements in, in, in several places, the, the UK and and Europe. Uh, amongst them coming through at, at higher levels than expected. And that's understandable. A lot of people are experiencing cost of living crises. Yeah. Uh, but the U.S. inflation also came in higher than expected now recently at 3.1%. Uh, so you know, if, if we're getting slowing economies at a time when inflation is starting to re-accelerate, that can, can have quite significant negative consequences for markets uh, and, and individuals. Stagflation is the worst of all worlds. Now, Rudy, in a situation where we have similar symptoms with uh, the likes of the UK and Japan, uh, these are economies, of course, are in the top 10 uh, leading economies in the world. They, in falling into technical recessions, are suffering the same things as us, lower consumer spending, um, you know, output is lower in terms of production services. Um, are we also looking, staring down a barrel where we could find ourselves in a position where we do face a technical recession, given that the uh, manufacturing and mining numbers that have come out already have not impressed? Yeah, I think it's absolutely possible. You know, um, we are not, we're a passenger on the global economy train. We're not a driver of it. And certainly these, our, our trading partners are people like the UK and Japan and the US. So that Japan currently has probably the, the second or third largest, or third largest economy in the world. Um, you know, a lot of our exports go there, our commodities go there. Uh, China is, is also encountering significant pressure at the moment on the back of a, a property industry that's that's severely constrained and they're the biggest global consumer of commodities so if, if, the, if demand elsewhere is under pressure it means our exports are under pressure it also means that uh, the amount of capital available for investment into our economy or our markets is is, is less readily a, a available um so you know, we won't escape a, a, a sort of wider slowdown in, in the more developed world. Uh, unfortunately, we won't, uh, we, we, we'll feel it as well here. Yeah. We also saw some company news coming through from the Australian miner South 32 uh, saying they're giving the go-ahead to the $2.1 billion U.S. zinc mine uh, as the company's profits slump. Uh, just looking at the reading of the, the results and also that particular project they're taking up, uh, the market, especially in South Africa, not too uh, joyful uh, with, that, uh, with that news. Yeah, they they have been rather hurt in this set of results. Revenues are down sort of fifteen percent, and they're encountering quite a lot of cost pressures. So as a result, earnings a share are down in the region of sort of ninety three percent, which is obviously a severe retracement. Uh, return on capital has, has dropped very materially, as and is barely positive. It's sort of one point three percent at the moment. Uh, EBITDA numbers were down sort of forty eight percent. So not not great uh, set of results. Uh, some of this is, is partly expected. Uh, the production numbers in aluminium actually uh, were at record levels, but unfortunately the pricing of, of the commodities or the demand for the commodity means prices were under pressure. So the receipts from, from that commodity specifically were, were under a lot of pressure. And then the volumes uh, in metallurgical coal also were, were quite a lot lower. Uh, so that those are, are two of the big drivers there. Uh, commodity prices seem to have accounted for roughly $400 odd million worth of retracement in their earnings. Um, aluminium made up quite a big chunk of that, about $136 million. Manganese, about another 102 And then nickel, about $121 odd million. And then the volumes of coal that retraced accounted for about $260 million of, of, of negative impact on their earnings. There are some bright lights. Uh, as you mentioned, I think this. Uh, the, the capex that they are looking at investing in Arizona, longer term, you know, I think has has significant upside. There is likely to be, uh, in the medium term, quite a pickup in the demand for 
zinc and lead, uh, which which is used significantly in battery technology. Uh, and they are talking about a better second half. So they're expecting uh, a pickup in production numbers of in the region of sort of 7% of copper equivalent production in the second half of the year. So that, that could could bode for a better a better second half to the year. Um, they do seem to be managing their costs quite well, which are only up in the region of sort of 4% on the controllable costs. Um, so they, I think there is light at the end of the tunnel, but it's yeah. it's probably not a, a short-term pretty picture. Then coming back to the JSE, a small rebound today, um, you know, pushed up by uh, resources shares, which are up 2%. Of course, I say rebound because yesterday we had a very negative uh, day of trade for the JSE. But for the top 10 of the top 100, Eight miners there of the tip, top 10 companies that came out with positive trades today. Sibanya Stillwater, uh, Implats, Goldfields, Anglo Gold, uh, Northern. What was the big driver for commodities today that saw that price go up so much? Seemingly, platinum and palladium prices are, are somewhat higher. So, and, and actually gold prices for that matter as well. So it's, it's really the precious metals players at the moment that are, are benefiting from that. Um, so hopefully... There's more legs to that to that trade. Specifically, platinum, palladium, over the last year or so, have, have encountered quite a lot of pressure. So I hope this uh, rebound has, has got some momentum for them. And do you think we'll have subdued trade going into the budget week? Of course, a big one for a national treasury next week. Do you think there'll be cautious trade uh, waiting on the minister's message then on Wednesday? Yeah, you know, I think I don't know that there's going to be a massive amount of surprises, quite honestly. Uh, generally, I suspect the market is already anticipating uh, reasonably poor news. You know, economic growth is under pressure at the moment. We know that uh, government debt levels are escalating to uncomfortable levels and that the tax receipts are under pressure. So I don't think any of these are going to be major surprises. Uh, and normally, you know, the message in the in the budget speech isn't necessarily poor. I think it's normally constrained and and considered. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's the implementation of the solutions yeah. that, that that we found problematic, and, and possibly that's where the market will be disappointed again. All right, that was the sound market wrap with uh, Rudy van der Marvel, portfolio manager at Advice Works. You're with Motel Faribe on seven o two and Cape Talk. Absa CIB, the bank that provides a customized treasury tool to manage FX risk and reporting, is proud to bring you The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield. Absa is a registered FSP. Now, the financial health of South Africa was, was in focus today. Of course, it is every day. We're all feeling this heavy, heavy economy. Uh, but uh, today, there was a special discussion in a virtual roundtable hosted by Her Majesty uh, Queen Maxima of the Netherlands as the Na- United Nations Secretary General Special Advocate for Inclusive Finance for Development. The Queen was also joined by Igor Thomas, the NetBank Group Managing Executive for Retail and Business Banking, really looking at the macro economy and its effects on the local market, but also the financial health of South Africans. Igor uh, Thomas, of course, part of that meeting, joining us now on The Money Show. Igor, uh, just some of the themes that were f- more important to focus on uh, in this particular roundtable and why uh, was it held? Uh, what, w- what were the solutions uh, bear for South Africans. So, Mateo, thank you. Good evening, first and foremost. Um, yeah, thank you for the opportunity to chat. Um, and this was really at the behest, um, and it's an initiative of um, Her Majesty Queen Maxima of the Netherlands. She is a big champion on financial inclusion, financial inclusivity, and um, over time, we've made contact with us. She reached out to us and discovered the work that we've been doing on financial inclusion as NetBank. And off the back of that, um, she initiated a roundtable invitation where we could discuss topics around financial inclusivity across the industry. So you had a roundtable um, of across the banks, across the regulators, some of the fintechs uh, that are involved in the financial services space, all around the table talking about how we might start thinking about the challenges of financial inclusivity. So that was essentially the emphasis of today's session. And what were some of the themes? I hear you say uh, the likes of uh, the uh, banks that we have in the country, uh, some uh, regulators, National Credit Regulator, South African Reserve Bank involved in this particular discussion. Are we solely looking at the South African consumer and their financial health and how the financial sector can make sure that there's inclusivity when it comes to that? 
inclusivity first as well as financial well-being even for those who are in the financial um in the in, in, in the banking and net as it were um those were the conversations because part of the challenge that we've seen and we've seen these reports coming from different direct uh, directions around the pressure that the african consumer is paying um is, is under currently there's huge amounts of stress given the state of the economy and that is playing out on the financial health of a lot of our customers and now how it's starting to play out is that customers who are feeling financial distress it starts playing out in their physical well-being in terms it starts playing out in their mental well-being as well so it's starting to manifest itself as a societal um pain point as it were and so that was one of the things that came up for big discussion so how do we as an industry start thinking around the issue of helping to unburden south africans with the pressure that they're feeling given uh, the challenges that they're facing so that was the one big theme and then of course the issue around financial inclusion why do we still have challenges of financial inclusion you know is it because we need to innovate better as an industry around how we design products how we create value chains from you know product to where we build presence how we use technology how we use principles of customer behavior etc in how we think of designing products and services so it covered the full spectrum of that as well from the point of view of financial inclusion so big conversation and spotlight on both inclusion but also on financial well-being now you can stop any south african uh, in the country and ask them about uh, the economy i'm sure they'll have their own story to tell we're all feeling it on the ground what is the industry's point of view on the defaulting consumer in terms of the banks i, I know with re- the results of the top four banks whenever they come out you can see just how strained the household is in south africa but what were some of the key takeaways from this particular discussion and how will they help uh, going forward and it's um and it's getting worse so that's a sad thing so you know today in a sense was um the starting point of this conversation so one of the things that we've we've realized is that to solve this thing no one institution consults us so we as an industry and all the relevant stakeholders from regulators um all the way to you know some of the emerging pockets like fintech players we need to collaborate so we need to collaborate as we compete in financial services that's one of the big breakthroughs that we came through the second thing is what does collaboration mean collaboration is sharing thoughts around how do we think about the challenge how do we have a common language that we use around approaching the problem um of financial pressure um because it impacts us as a business you know to the point that you made earlier material you know every time you report numbers you see um climbs in impairment charges climbs in bad debts all of those things are not good for the industry they're not good for the health of the industry so we need to have a collaborative um approach to this thing it can't be that net bank wants to solve it on its own or bank b we need to work together so the idea that we will start uh, a working committee to start staring down this challenge was one of the big breakthroughs that we got to um in our session and in our deliberations today and drilling down on inclusion uh, from the banking sector especially when it comes um, to those previously disadvantaged in the country there's been a lot of criticism around the banks in terms of differing interest rates for different um, you know clients but also uh, you know trying to set up a bank in South Africa is quite tough when it comes to applying to the Reserve Bank uh, did the working committee also discuss that type of inclusivity uh, for for South Africans So no we did not touch on industry issues we only had an hour and a half actually so this was not a a lengthy session um no we didn't and um and yes you're talking to someone who appreciates the challenges of um of you know industry how do you know widen participation by other players um in the, in the in the banking industry but what was encouraging about today was the breadth of participants in the conversation you know one of the things that technology in banking is allowing us to do or is the birthing of fintechs new players or players that are focused on some of the challenges 
especially at the lower end of the market, and they were part of this conversation. There's some fintechs that are doing amazing work. You know, um, my dear friend Lincoln Miley from Lisaga was part of the conversation, and he shared with us some of the things that Lisaga is an organization who play, you know, was, you know, the genesis of the organization is, um, is the social grant space. So they service um, very deep in kind of in the traditionally non-included um, banking sector of South Africa. Yeah, and no, the work that they do is really well, accelerated. Yeah. Correct. So they were part of this conversation. So that was the important thing for me. It's just the breadth. It was not just the traditional players. It was just the full span of players in the industry that were part of this deliberation. And that was encouraging. And what can we expect from the working committee that's come out of this UN roundtable on the financial health of South Africans? So firstly, we need to formalize it. So there's a big job of work. You know, part of the challenge that we've taken upon ourselves is, you know, what would um, formalizing the working committee look like? So the work begins now in earnest. So we're not there yet. There's huge amounts of work that need to be done, you know, in terms of formalizing um, what this working committee would look like. Um, so I'm not in a position, obviously, yeah. to then come up with details around that. But certainly, you know, it will be in the headlines. This is something that is important for South Africans. So I'm sure you will hear about the work as it evolves. Definitely. We'll also follow up on it. That was a. Th- Rigo Thomas, a Group Managing Executive for Retail and Business Banking at NetBank. Motel Paripe on The Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m. Welcome back to The Money Show. Now, we've all heard of fintech, but have you heard of insurtech? This is uh, when you use the technology in insurance transaction and processes. A big disruptor coming through for South Africa is everything.insure. They have just launched a world-first commercial insurance marketplace tailor-made for South African businesses with revenues below 20 million and those above 20 million rand. I'm joined now by executive head at everything.insure. It's Mishaya Chetia to chat to us about what exactly are they doing to disrupt the insurance uh, industry in South Africa using InsureTech. Mishaya, welcome to The Money Show. Hi, Mateo. Nice to be chatting to you. Let's first describe what InsureTech is. I think we've all grasped the idea of fintech, but what is InsureTech? I think you summarized it quite well. InsureTech is just using the latest technologies to provide services in the insurance industry that used to be traditional, but now can be done digitally. Now, South Africa has a robust industry when it comes to insurance. We have insurers that are more than 100 years old. Um, you know, in everything.insure, how is the use of technology going to bring it closer to South African consumers? Well, I think um, with technology, you're able to get to the, the South African consumers a lot better and insurance becomes a lot more accessible. Up until now, insurance was something that was uh, sold, not bought. So you couldn't, you had to wait for a broker to approach you and you'd have to, you had to um, try and get access to insurance. Whereas now you can go online and you can get any type of insurance yourself or via a broker quite easily. Now, last year, everything.insure, uh, you were named as the top three finalists in the two categories at the MTN Business App of the Year Awards 2023. What does this particular app do? Why is it so trailblazing in this particular industry? So the Everything.Insure app is a digital insurance marketplace. So more than um, just selling one insurance product, it offers you a wide variety of insurance products and it it offers you multiple insurance providers. So we have curated the insurance market to bring consumers the tier one insurers, the best insurers for each type of insurance. And you can go through a very simple journey, get presented with tier one insurer products, and uh, be able to actually buy online with no paperwork, no call centers, and your entire life cycle is then housed in one app where you can have your personal insurance with one insurer, your funeral with another, and your commercial insurance with another, and have the same experience in one place. So this would be a platform for existing insurers where uh, clients can go and shop for the type of insurance they're looking for uh, using your platform, if I'm getting you correctly. Yeah, so first-time insurance buyers and people who already have insurance. And it wouldn't be just a matter of giving out a quote from different players, like uh, comparing quotes, uh, like uh, another player in the insurance space does. Yeah, so it wouldn't be um, 
just giving you prices and then having to go through the normal buying process thereafter, you'd be able to do everything fully digitally in one in our environment. You wouldn't be pushed onto the insurer or the service provider. How difficult was it to get the existing insurance industry to uh, play along and get uh, on your network uh, and also work with you in trying to make sure that they can reach as many people as they can? Yeah, so I think um, changing an industry is always going to be tough and insurance is one of those industries that, like you said, some of the insurers are over 100 years old. They're used to doing things traditionally. They're used to doing rating on tables and there's lots of paperwork involved. So it was quite a challenge to gain their trust, firstly, and then secondly, to challenge the way that they do things, to reduce the number of questions, to codify the underwriting rules and the risk profiling, etc. So uh, for the last, everything.insure has been building for five and a half years. And for the most of that time, it was changing the industry rather than building the tech. Now, insurance can be very complex for even the consumers that use it. I mean, reading the fine print and making sure that you're all covered uh, so that when you claim, nothing catches you out. Uh, does uh, everything.insure try to hold the hands of consumers to help them out in this process? Absolutely. That's one of the main values of everything.insure is we take the time to understand each insurer's product and then to we've got plain language experts that take those products and then give consumers advice all along the way, ask the right questions in the right way that the consumer understands. And then we have comparison tools that allow consumers to understand the differences between each insurance product, not just on price, but on quality of insurer and quality of product, highlighting things that are covered, things that are not covered, so that the consumer is empowered. Now, Mishai, it would be easy to get on board uh, to sign up with an insurer on an online platform. But when I've got complaints, when we're not seeing eye to eye with this insurer, uh, is insure is everything dot insure also involved in that process, or you just uh, give give it off to to the third party then to handle? So everything dot insure handles everything that is client facing, from acquisition to everything you want. Every time you want to make a change, when you have a claim, when you have a complaint, we are. We're also licensed with the FSCA for digital advice, and we've got a team of human brokers, underwriters, claims handlers in the office so that there is always a person to speak to, and uh, we handle everything from claims to complaints. Always love a little disruption. Everything dot insure, of course, disrupting and shaking the tables in the insurance industry. Uh, the top three finalists in the two categories of the MTN Business App of the Year Awards. Basically, a platform where all their insurers will be in this particular app, helping you to better understand the products that you're taking up. This awkward silence was brought to you by Pineapple. The Money Show will give you all the tools you need to navigate the complicated world of economics and commerce, even if you're not a numbers person. The Money Show with Motel Faripe. 6 to 8 p.m. Making money makes sense. On 702 and Cape Talk. The Money Show with Motel Faripe. On 702. Let's walk the talk. APSA CIB, the bank that provides a customized treasury tool to manage FS risks and reporting, is proud to bring you The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield. APSA is a registered FSP. Now, looking into a company that's on the Cape Town Stock Exchange, you often focus on the JSE, but there are other companies doing a lot of great work in Cape Town. The Transformational Investment Portfolio One Limited, otherwise known as TIP One, is an investment company listed in the Cape Town Stock Exchange. They mainly focus on empowering investors through diverse investment opportunities uh, with their goal making investing quite accessible and inclusive as well. We're joined now by Dwayne Di Oliveira, the Managing Director of TIP1. Uh, this company coming with a proven a track record in finance and investment uh, in terms of uh, leadership uh, through Dwayne, uh, they've impressed uh, on the market uh, having uh, a zero, coming from a zero asset base and now at 35 million rand doing this in just 12 months. We're going to be finding out, um, you know, how aggressive the company has been, what kind of investing they're involved in and how they're making sure they're making sure that this is quite inclusive. Uh, joined now by the Managing Director at Tip1, uh, Dwayne de Oliveira. Dwayne, uh, welcome to The Money Show. Good evening, Matteo, and good evening to you and to all your listeners, and thank you for the opportunity and the welcome. 
Now you must have a quite a big machine running there in Cape Town because moving Tip One from a zero asset base to an impressive 35 million rand in assets in just 12 months. What kind of work went into pushing for that kind of target? I think so. First of all, uh, so, so our primary listing uh, is on the Cape Town Stock Exchange. Uh, but as a business, proud to say that we're based up in up in Gauteng, uh, within the, the richest square mile in Africa. Uh, we run a, a lean machine uh, and in true finance terms with our assets and our biggest assets uh, in terms of reaching those targets you've mentioned there is, is our human capital and the push and the drive behind the vision to, to, make, list, to, to make investing into listed BE schemes affordable and inclusive and accessible to everyone. Inclusive is a big word uh, for tip sure. one. And how do you do that uh, in terms of your portfolio? Are you uh, deliberate in the types of companies that you target? So I think for us, exclusivity really boils down to a couple of... Sorry, inclusivity, not exclusivity. Inclusivity really boils down to a couple of key points. Um, I think the, the one thing we are very, uh, have been very concerned about and really have pushed is, is ease of access. Uh, you know, as you pointed out in the introduction, we're a listed business on the Cape Town Stock Exchange and our investment strategy and our investment thesis is very specific to saying how do we allow, how do we facilitate uh, an ease, ease of access for investors uh, into a quality portfolio of listed B investments. So we've created a single entry point into these shares on a portfolio basis which really makes it uh, inclusive for, for the average man in the street, but even right up to more sophisticated, more uh, educated investors if we can put it that way. So for us, uh, inclusivity really lies around transact- ease of transacting uh, through a single entry point into the portfolio. Uh, secondly, we're inclusive even in terms of, let's call it racial demographic, if I may, um, because as long as tip one remains majority black owned, Investing into this asset class of listed BE schemes is actually open to all levels of invest of investor, whether uh, black in terms of retail, white in terms of retail, if I can put it that way, even up to allowing you know uh, institutional access. Uh, that so that that's really where when we talk about inclusivity, it really centres around around those two key components. Uh, talk to us about the strategy that the company has in terms of attracting sure. uh, those black retail investors and some of the uh, triple BE schemes that you're also sure. uh, running uh, within your, your, your organization. No problem. So our current portfolio uh, is made up of, let's call it almost the usual, the usual suspects. Uh, so we've got Yebu Yetu in there, which uh, is the Vodacom scheme. We've got MTN Zakele Futi, which is the MTN scheme. We've got the Solby One scheme, which is which is the Sassel scheme, and then we are we've got Putumanati, which is the multi-choice South Africa scheme. So, so those are the current positions which we have in the portfolio. Our investment thesis, our investment strategy, is really narrow in that it's focused on investing into listed or what we also say is near-listed B schemes. Right, so there are a number of unlisted schemes out there, uh, which Tip One is able to invest into. So that that's really from an investment universe perspective investment portfolio that's we are very narrow in terms of our focus when it comes to retail investing and the way we've we've chosen to approach this as a business is we have a strong focus on on on, let's call it communities and community trusts and as well as informal uh savings savings uh, informal informal savings groups it's not just lip service Uh, our two main shareholders are, are, are two large traditional community trusts and then we also have a stock file and a key relationship in place with the entity called Stockfeller, which enables us to bring in uh, Stockfell uh, capital. But I think underpinning all of this material is that we have really, as a business, streamlined operations and have a mobile app in place, which allows people to onboard as a shareholder easily uh, through one single entry point, but also allows people to trade then on the Cape Town Stock Exchange through a single entry point. So um, that, that, that's really how we've got into that market in terms of that, that retail investors. Yeah. A lot of people will then look down on that type of um, so, you know, a strategy because um, we mm. told that if you look into the GSE, there's, there's better returns and looking into, uh, at, at far bigger companies for better returns. But how have you um, taken advantage of, of this particular strategy in terms of uh, being more inclusive and looking where other uh, you know, investment companies aren't looking? How, how is this benefited your your own organization in tip one sure i think again great question 
uh, we obviously have a view in that. Uh, so, so, for example, one of the things we, we often talk to, to prospective investors about is, you know, if, if you would say to use a potential Vodacom or MTN or, or Sasol as an example, you could invest directly into main Vodacom, in, directly into main MTN, if I can call it that, or main Sasol. However, what we're looking to do is take advantage of those uh, B, let, let's call it the B discounts as a result of, you know, a, a number of factors. One of those being maybe potential lack of liquidity in the market. And so you could invest into Yebu Yetu as an example that's at a significant discount to Vodacom. Um, and really, you'd have your, your ultimate exposure remains Vodacom in, in terms of that. You know, these schemes have one asset, uh, and that, that's the main company that it's invested into. Yes, there have been some terrible stories, there are some horror stories around some schemes, uh, but there are also some good stories. Uh, and, and I think the way we've, we've really segmented that then in terms of, of being specific in, in, in picking our targets is we rely on independent investment advice as well, which, called, which also removes a, a lot of the emotion and a lot of the noise that inevitably follows a, a lot of these schemes. So that, that's really how we've managed to, to maximize in, in terms of our investment strategy there. A zero asset base to 35 million rand, not an easy feat, but this is something, it's not your first rodeo, is it, uh, Don? Because uh, <laughs> you know everything about uh, turnarounds, especially of struggling entities. Yeah. How have uh, yeah. you used some of your experience to make sure that th- this particular uh, entity is also a success? I, I think it, it really boils down to alignment, vision, and you know we spoke about human capital earlier, and, and, and everybody being aligned in terms of that. Uh, if I may quickly, Mateo, just sidestep, you know, uh, for my sins or not, I'm a big Liverpool supporter. And, you know, your sins, help. definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, deal breaker. But I thought, let me just be transparent with you. You know, uh, Jürgen Klopp speaks about the power, the power of the crowd, the power of being aligned. And, and I think that's really where it started. Cup uh, One has been around for a while. Um, uh, and kudos to the previous management, kudos to the previous executive. They really came up with the idea. Uh, and, you know, about three years ago, I came on board along with the team, but re-energized the team, just refocused, but really looked back at, at our systems, looked back at our operating uh, procedures. Uh, you know, we needed, to, to, to your point earlier, around inclusivity and ease of access, right? And we needed to understand how do we do that. Uh, and, and that's really where the technology, the mobile app came into it, and then really riding on the wave of the fintech uh, buzz, you know, uh, in, in that way. So I think that was good from a... From, from a strategy perspective, in terms of turning the business around. Secondly was also we, again, being focused in terms of where is it that we're hunting assets, yeah. where, is it that we're, where is it that we're hunting shareholders. Uh, I've, I've been involved in advising different communities, different community trusts for, for a while. Let's call it on the side, if it were, almost as my other day job. And so that, that's really where we started, you know. Um, and, and in building this thing up on the bottom, we've managed to get traction, we've managed to get a bit of credibility. And our next step as a business is to really take this platform that's been created through the team and, and look at taking it forward into, out into the market uh, and, and to grow it further. But I think the key point around it all is, is, is really lies around alignment. Really, uh, any turnaround really you know, lies around uh, alignment, uh, the desire and the will of people to buy into that dream, to buy into that vision. And, and then as leadership... Uh, I'm just part of a leadership team for us to be at the forefront of that. All right, looking for a transformational investment portfolio, an inclusive one. Uh, look up for Tip One, uh, Dwayne De Oliveira, the managing director at Tip One, there, a company, of course, uh, listed on the Cape Town Stock Exchange. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB, the bank that provides a customized treasury tool to manage FX risk and reporting. APSA's a registered FSP. The Money Show. Small business. With Pablo Fetidis. And tonight we have a key focus, especially for South African entrepreneurs, achieving growth for your business in an economy that is not growing, especially our economy. You know, South Africa has been struggling to reach that 5% growth we need to create jobs. Pablo Fetidis, CEO at Auric Business Accelerator, here with all the gems to help us, uh, you know, revive our businesses and keep them uh, afloat, especially in an economy that's hardly moving. Pablo, welcome to the Money Show again. Uh, should business growth be a priority for a business owner or are you looking maybe to uh, you know start up a passion and, and see how far it goes well you know if you're not growing you're dying 
in a business. And there are a couple of reasons for it, Matteo. Uh, there's this invisible thing that we live with and feel with every day called inflation. So by definition, if you're not growing your business by at least, you know, a minimum of inflation, uh, you're eroding your value. So if we assume that inflation is running at what, let's say, five or six percent, somewhere around there, let's be conservative and say six percent. And if we assume that uh, our country growth rate, oh dear, I shouldn't say that. That's almost like a I don't know if that's just wishful thinking or a wishing word. We'll get but let's there. assume we'll get that our country growth rate could hit 1%. Let's say we were going to go at 1%. If we had the 6% inflation and the 1% company uh, country growth rate, which is going to lift all businesses apparently, then at a minimum, we should be running at 7%. But it doesn't stop there because depending on what industry you're in, some industries grow faster than others, depending on the vogue, the fashion, what's happening in those industries. So right now, the renewable energy industry is certainly growing faster than the construction industry or the steel industry. The AI tech industry is going to be growing faster than the very established, let's call it uh, ERP software industry. So the industry that you're in also has a growth rate. And typically, it sits anywhere between 2 and 4 5%. So if we're going to be conservative as entrepreneurs, because a good entrepreneur will always guard the downside and play the upside. And what that expression means is you need to set the minimum bar beyond which you know that you're going to be safe. What is that minimum risk that you know you will be safe. If we take 6% inflation, if we take a 1% GDP growth rate, and we take, let's say, let's keep some nice round numbers, a 3%, a 3% industry growth rate, you've got a 10% growth rate. And to hit that 10% growth rate simply means you're staying where you are. Everything you've worked for, everything you've built, the company you have, its current valuation, at 10% maintains your valuation, maintains your energy, your effort, your wealth. It doesn't grow your company. It simply maintains it. So you cannot afford to be in business and not have a growth mindset. And you absolutely cannot afford to not be growing. But that mindset of maintaining uh, something that works, you can still pay uh, the people you work with, uh, you can still keep the lights on. Some businesses are happy to do that for years. Of course, there are dangers of staying stagnant, but there is that uh, anxiety-inducing word of scaling. How do you make sure then that you are able to scale as, as, you, uh, as the economy grows as well? Because some people will say, I'll keep the same number of people that are working with me so that when the economy grows, I can benefit from all the profits. You know, that was a strategy that I thought was vital during COVID. In COVID, when everything tanked, and, you know, we, we have short memories. So if we just go back to it and think about it from a business point of view, I think one of the most important things is to maintain your team and to maintain your team all the time. And the reason for it is that many businesses are built around the people that they have, as opposed to being built around, honestly, the customers they serve and the processes that they deploy to ensure that they can serve those customers effectively. So keeping your people is going to be an important feature. This notion of scaling, very often you hear the word scaling. It sounds very appealing. It sounds very cool to achieve and attain. But mostly when I speak to people about scaling, there's no real sense of how you technically engineer it into your business. And there's a very particular approach that allows for scaling. So if we look at it from that perspective, yeah. and we say, look, you know, we want to scale so we can grow. We need to keep our people. Gosh, all of that feels really hard. You know, I might well not decide to grow because every time I have grown, it's created pain in my business. You need to unpick that scab and say, what lies beneath that pain? And Mateo, mostly, when people say, I don't want to grow, it's because of two or three reasons. Number one, we don't have a growth plan or an approach to growth. Number two, 
every time we have, it's cost us real money. And the reason it's cost us real money is because we had not built the business at a scalable level to support growth, exactly what you pointed out. Or number three, I don't know how to grow. All of those are overcomable if you invest in unpicking each of them in each instance and say, right, there's a technique to overcome this issue of growing and not losing money by building a scalable platform. I can build a scalable platform by making sure I have an organized system or approach to how I market and how I sell and how I fulfill and how I administer and how I manage my money. And if I have a set of activities that allows me to ensure that, then I can get the right people on board to support those activities, releasing my time to focus on what I should be doing as a business owner. And that's leading the growth that we're talking about in the early stage. Now, looking at our particular market in terms of GDP growth, not much to talk about. And I'm sure a lot of business owners will tell you we've been doing it without the growth. But for those that don't know how to grow at a time when the economy is stagnant, where do you begin? Well, and you're quite right, because certainly from what I've seen, look, how long our economy has been stagnant for how, how many years now? I've lost count. I think close to a decade now. We've been really, really stagnant. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I have lost count. It actually just feels like this is the normal way of, of how South Africa manages its economy. Um, but in any event, over that period, I have directly witnessed and seen, and I'm not talking about a small number of businesses, I'm talking about a fairly significant number of businesses constantly grow year on year. So how have they achieved that? If the country itself is not growing, how are they getting their growth? And it comes through a couple of things. And I really don't want to sound you know, very idealistic and quaint, but seriously, the starting point is to develop a growth mindset, to actually turn around and say, you know what, I need to start thinking about how to grow my business. And if it's not growing, maybe it's the way that I'm approaching business or the way that I'm leading my business. Because very often, the way I'm doing things is what got me to where I am. It certainly is what keeping me where I am. And it might not be good enough to get me to where I want to be. So the first step is to get a growth mindset and to change your mindset around growth. And that means you need to be open to new thinking and new learning. Because we never really taught how to grow a business. It's something you kind of figure out over a period of time. And what certainly worked five years ago is unlikely to work today. The next thing is to turn around and say, well, if there is no growth in the economy and I have a growth mindset, how many of my competitors occupy that growth mindset? And Matteo, the stats show that around 14.7% generally of competitors in industries have more or less a growth mindset. So around 15% of all businesses in an economy, in a certain sector, in a certain segment, are growth mind-orientated. The fact that you're thinking growth means don't consider the fact that, or consider the fact that most of your competitors might not be thinking growth. So if you're thinking growth, when they're not thinking growth, what does it mean? You're going to behave differently. Yeah. When you behave differently in a growth economy, you're going to get your growth by eating their lunch. Because if they're not growing and they're not making things, they're not doing things differently to grow in the same economy and you are doing things differently and you're finding the path to growth, you'll simply take their lunch and that's how you get your growth. That's, that's what I wanted to, to know in terms of me- measuring the growth. Are you laughing all the way to the bank? Are you looking at your increased customer base or maybe the market share that you've gained? Well, it depends how you're growing. You know, growth for the sake of growth is not a good thing because if you're only growing your revenue, and you're not increasing your profitability year on year, and there's a big difference between the two, then all you're doing is growing complexity. So imagine this scenario. Let's say you have a business doing 20 million a year in revenue. And let's say your profitability is 10% of that 20 million. So you're producing each year a 2 million profit. If you take that same business and you grow it to 60 million, and you maintain your profitability of 10%, and you're then sitting with 6 million, Yes, there's a bigger quantum of profit, but the complexity and the risk of a 20 million rand business versus 60 million rand business 
is huge, huge. Alternatively, if you have a business doing 20 million and your profitability is 10% and you grow it smartly to 30 million and you increase your profitability to 15%, on 30 million, you're producing a one, uh, what is it, a 3 million uh, uh, um, uh, profit, sorry, no, a 4.5 million uh, round profit on 15%, as opposed to the 2 million that you were enjoying at 20 million. That increase in profitability, along with the increase in growth rate, is what you should be aiming for and is what should guide your choice of growth, your strategy behind growth, and then how you lead your team into that growth. And those are the gems. The Money Show. Investment School. APSA CIB, the bank that provides a customized treasury tool to manage FS risk and reporting, is proud to bring you The Money Show with Bruce Fitfield. APSA is a registered FSP. If you're joining us in our conversation now, it's time for our investment school, exploring the evolution of AI chips, the advancements, challenges, and the future implications of this particular sector with our head teacher, uh, Viv Govender, portfolio manager at Rand Swiss. Uh, Viv, let's look at now at setting up a portfolio of these companies in in terms of getting returns as an investor, who should be your anchor tenant when you're looking at the chip companies? Yes, I mean, like NVIDIA is probably the one, like, like I said, it's already risen up quite substantially. And if you look at you just uh, the growth of that company compared to even the other Magnificent Seven, it has been spectacular. Uh, um, I think if you're looking at that the particular field, you look at AMD, you'd look at probably at ARM as well. ARM, until like a couple of weeks ago, was not even in the picture. It, uh, like I said, wasn't doing too much. And then the list of earnings came out and it was found out that apparently they were uh, very, our ARM chips were being used in data centers, even they were using NVIDIA chips. And therefore the share price basically went out like 60, 50, 60% in a day. I think the one thing that if I would have to have in this particular thing that uh, is probably ASML. Um, I do think that if you just look at the geopolitics of the moment, uh, you know, Taiwan, like I said, very vulnerable to China. There's it's, it's a key linchpin of the global economy in terms of uh, chip manufacturing, uh, and we've seen, for instance, things like the Infrastructure Reduction Act from the U.S. and similar measures in Europe and so on uh, about trying to get themselves, you know, uh, away from these risks uh, associated with China and to some extent Taiwan and manufacturing more things locally. Now, if you can manufacture both uh, something in more than one place, it probably increases the cost of manufacturing. But what it does benefit is the guy that sends you the machines to make these things, and therefore ASM is probably going to benefit from the fact that more countries want to be having, you know, local chip supply. And, you know, they would be the, uh, like, the linchpin, I would think, of uh, investing in the space. Now, technology is quick and it moves very quickly. Um, and China, while it tries to sort itself out in terms of bolstering its semiconductor industry, do you think they've been left behind? Uh, I know they spent around $40 billion uh, in trying to get more computer chip making machines into the country. But is the te- technology too far ahead now? Look, you never can say it's too far ahead. You can always catch up with things. Uh, uh, but to give you an idea, I mean, like Sam often we discussed, and there was a there was a rumor that he was looking to raise some money for his own uh, chip manufacturing, uh, you know, endeavor. Um, and he was looking to raise raise a figure that was mentioned was seven trillion dollars. That's an insane amount of money. That's like you know. 10% of global GDP just about. It was it was an unbelievable amount of money to be discussed. Like, I don't know how much true that is, but I mean, the numbers that we're putting here, uh, Elon Musk alone, I think probably putting over a quarter of a billion, uh, looking at the, the different governments in the world. I mean, it's not just companies out there that are investing. And China is not the only government looking at doing these things. I mean, the U- UK government has done it. Uh, the Middle East, uh, 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 uh Developments happening in AI have happened in the Middle East, uh, you know, in the Gulf states. Um, you know, they've had their own LLM as well. Uh, they are putting in, you know, billions. Um, like I talked about SoftBank with ARM, uh, they are also looking to to uh, redirect capital. They've had some setback with things like WeWork, but this ARM investment has, like, you know, grown so much in the last few weeks that they've more than made up that loss. And they're also looking to put funds in. So $40 billion sounds like a lot of money. But like I said, AMD, uh, the number two chip manufacturer out there, uh, has discussed the number of around $400 billion in the next few years in terms of investments in the AI space. Microsoft has discussed, just one company alone, Microsoft has discussed investing $50 billion into uh, AI infrastructure. So uh, when single companies are putting that kind of money in, for the world's second largest economy to put in $40 billion is not, I think, uh, a really uh, outrageous amount.
And if I'm in South Africa and I want in on some of these wins in terms of investing in AI and some of these chip entities, how do I go about it? Look, it's very difficult to go in via South Africa. I mean, uh, we in, in a certain way were very lucky to touch the internet revolution uh, and the mobile revolution, that kind of stuff, uh, because we had NASPAS in South Africa and NASPAS made an investment in a company called Tencent in China. And that investment turned out to be one of the greatest investments in history. Uh, you know, we're talking about thousands of times, not thousands of percent, thousands of times return in a period of about two decades, which is an unbelievable return. The kind of return you get in a lot of ticket, you know, um, that's what uh, effectively happened there. And the chance of that happening again is unlikely. Uh, but that being said, I mean, you can buy internationally. I personally run an AI portfolio uh, that invests in, you know, listed companies that are linked to AI. And there's not just the chip manufacturers out there. There's companies like Palantir, there's companies like Meta, Facebook uh, that are also involved in the AI space that are really key. Uh, and and you, you would think, okay, uh, this is all the future stuff, things that happen in the future. But look at Meta. Meta had an issue with Apple where it was not getting enough data from Apple in order to basically target its ads like it used to. But with AI, and Meta has been really uh, you know, important in AI. They developed uh, the Llama system, which is one of the more powerful open source uh, AI systems out there they were able to actually use the small amount of data they were getting from their uh, users and still get the same amount of targeting because the AI was able to figure that stuff out. Uh, even companies like Adobe are in it. Uh, you know, AI is becoming Salesforce is getting into it. Uh, AI is becoming more and more uh, ubiquitous in the entire tech space at the moment. And then uh, how much am I putting away to try and invest in those companies? I know you said you personally run an AI portfolio. Am I looking at investing uh, in terms of my mindset in dollars then? How many, how many dollars should I be having? Not even talking rand terms. Oh, yeah, yeah, unfortunately, you have to invest in dollars. Uh, look, I mean, if you look at these companies, uh, you probably want to have a selection of different things out there. I mean, the companies I would think are key to be exposed to the AI space are Microsoft, uh, things like Apple, things like, um, you know, Meta, like I discussed, uh, Alphabet, Google, um, Tesla, very important as well. Uh, they, are, they are definitely, depending on what with the AI, Elon Musk decides to develop AI, but the Tesla or not, they still have really key AI uh, you know, potentials out there with things like the, not just the self-driving vehicle, but the Optimus robot. And if you want to develop a portfolio of about 20 US stocks, you're looking at probably somewhere around $20,000 or so as a minimum to get into them like that. All right, that was Aviv Gavanda, our head teacher today, portfolio manager at Rand Swiss, talking about the advantages of looking into tech stocks, the likes of those that are running the AI uh, drive at the current moment, but also those that are making chips that are found in our smartphones, are found on our laptops, and even in some weapons around the world. How can you cash in on that? That was